particularly in light of the uh, homework, so-called, that we provided on Thursday, just encouraging people to reread, reconsider these two suttas, Majjhima Nikaya 29 and, uh, and 107, with, a, with an eye to their practice, how, as we hope people are finding, how, how the suttas, how sutta study can be kind of brought into practice in ways that make, make the suttas come alive and also help keep practice vibrant and alive. So curious if there's any questions, reflections from the last couple of days, feel free to put some things in the chat if you want, or raise a hand, Zoom hand preferred, so we make sure we see it. Um, but, you know, feel free to wave a hand or a, a le- shake a leg if uh, if you can't find a Zoom hand. Susan. Hi, good morning. Um, you know, I noticed that um, one of you, I think Kim, probably all of you, are referring to uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation as well. And I'm wondering if that would be a good um, strategy for us as well to find other translations and look at those uh, in conjunction with the translation that was provided. That's a really great question, Susan. And uh, yeah, it can be very instructive and also very inspiring to consider uh, alternative translations of both words and whole texts. And we particularly find ourselves drawn to the site called Sutta Central, and maybe somebody could put a link into that if you're if you're not aware of it, where you'll find for all of these uh, discourses, sometimes multiple translations in various languages. About Bhikkhu Bodhi, I would say we we I think it's safe to say the four of us probably go to Bhikkhu Bodhi first. Uh, he he has created a whole um, body of work of translation with incredible care and sophistication and great technique, a uh, real art, art, artist translator, artist and scientist, um, very complete texts with very wonderfully annotated and footnoted um, comments. In addition, Bhikkhus Sujato, who, who is sort of behind Sutta Central, has wonderful translations that sometimes have a more contemporary feel. I see Diana has unmuted. She's an expert here. Let me see if she has something to add. Yeah, maybe I'll just add that um, I'll say if I'm doing sutta study, I'll look at Bika Bodhi because it is really close to the Pali. Whereas if I'm giving a Dharma talk, I'll look at Bika Sujato on Sutta Central. It's, as David says, a little more contemporary, not as you know close to the Pali, but is given a a flavor of what's happening. And part of the reason why we gave the link to Sutta Central is because it's freely available. Biko Bodhi's translations, you have to have these, the books, you need to purchase the books where we can't do to copyright, just give those out. So we are looking at both. And I just wanted to share how I use the two different translators. Thank you. Here, here's here's the Bhikkhu Bodhi Majjhima Nikaya with my multiple colored uh, inserts and, you know, heavy annotation of my own. But it's a it's a large volume, and with the various suttas, there are five of these. So, um, yeah, it's easier to go online. Everybody, I see Kim also raised hers. We got we have these always at the left or right hand because that's the first place to go. Um, in addition, I'm just going to put in a plug for Sutta Central to say, as Diana mentioned, if you care about the Pali, you can view it in various ways. And some translations, Sujatos include the ability to see the Pali either side by side or line by line with the English translation. And uh, so Sutta Central is a very powerful tool. It has a cord, what do we call them? Um, 
concordances and indexes and way to search for things. Enough said about that. Nancy. Nancy and, and no, a I, I, line friend. I, I kind of forgot what my, my point was I was going to make. I was so stunned by all of your tabs on your, um, your, your book there. I was wondering, how do you find what you need with all of those tabs? It's, it's like you almost have as many tabs as there are pages. So how do you find it? Are they color-coded for particular things? You know, at the risk of making this about me, since since I was in graduate school, I do use a color-coded system for, for oh. notations and tabs. And uh, mm-hmm. at the top of the volume, you'll see there are many fewer. Oh. <laughs> and and these, these take me directly to things like the Satipatthana Sutta, right? Oh, okay. Other gotcha. ones where, as Diana said, in creating talks or going back again and again, I find it useful to go. Did you have another question, though? Sorry to have sidetracked you. With- no, I sort of just, I had been reflecting the whole thing about the tree, um, the, uh, the heartwood in the tree just really touched me. And, you know, all of these analogies keep going off in my brain about it. Um, one being, you know, being in California with the fires, it's really the heartwood of the trees that make the trees uh, continue to exist after fire, right? it's the one thing that saves the life of the tree. Um, and the other thing is, is that, that the, the heartwood of the tree doesn't remain strong unless there are the leaves or the branches. I mean, it really is a living whole. I think somebody made that point earlier. Um, and no one part really uh, exists without the other, uh, which reminds me of our practice, which is not linear, but um, it all sort of feeds, you know, it continually feeds, uh, feeds the practice. So, yeah. Um, nice, nice observations. And it's, it's really true that bringing these, letting these similes come alive in our practice is something we're really trying to, you know, make accessible. We don't have to think about them in one way. You mentioned fires, of course, in the case of redwoods, the bark provides, uh, a, you know, a, a protection against fire and mm-hmm. the cones only open with fire. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's just a hundred ways to go around these and bring them into each of our own practices and make, make the simile our own, make the practice our own. So thanks for that, Nancy. And the outer, the bark and the, and, and that uh, when it protects the tree is also uh, the newest part of the tree. So that when you're learning all the time, it still can be protective and, I don't know. You know what I'm saying. Thank you. Anyway, thank you. No, you bet. Hands are now popping up fast and furious. Let me take just one more question now, and then we'll have additional time for uh, questions coming up. But let me go. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, Winnie, if I can ask you to hold on for just a moment. Let me go to Joni, whose voice we haven't heard, I think, yet in this class. So, Joni. Oh, uh, could you unmute? Yeah, there you go. I can find a little bud. Um, thank you. Uh, yeah, I was mentioning to my husband this morning, uh, today's Earth Day, and we're talking about hardwood and the trees. And I and I and I really relate to this that you're sharing all this wisdom with us. You're helping us develop our own wisdom and open up to more teachings. Um, and the trees have this underground growth system going where they're always helping each other 
They share nutrients, they share water, um, food, um, and they support each other. And in the case of redwoods, like you said, the bark is, keeps them protected. Aspens have all these other, they can have acres and acres and acres of one tree that shoots up yeah. into thousands of trees. Yeah. And I, I, I relate that to the teachings and, and you're sharing your wisdom with us. So, yeah. Thank you so much and happy oh, birthday. You're welcome. Thank you. Wonderful point. <clears throat> and it's interesting just that we've become, we know more about how trees interact as communities now than perhaps it was appreciated at the Buddhist time. Can't say that for sure. Sometimes ancient cultures had, you know, a more, more profound understanding of the interconnections of life than, than we do. But again, Lovely to bring the, the simile alive into practice. So um, I'm, I've written down Winnie and Will. Keep, we'll keep that in mind as we, when we open the next uh, Q&A uh, period. Keep your question in mind. Let me turn it over to Diana for our first uh, teaching. Thank you. Thank you. What a delight. I don't know. I feel like, oh, our being trees and uh, like connected. Uh, I love this and nourished by the sun and the rain and each other. I just love this. So I echo this. Happy Earth Day to everybody. So I wanted to just bring in something, um, maybe a theme that uh, we've been talking about in this class. And that is that there are times in which we might be stopping short or veering off the path. Another way we might say this is that we just have some resistance or maybe just a little bit of like struggle with the path, this feeling like, yeah, I don't really want to today. <laughs> you know, just this, uh, yeah, or this is natural. This is part of what I want to say. It's a natural part of practice. It is not a personal failing. It is not a character flaw. It's natural that the mind um, will rebel when we're trying to train it. It's just whenever, no matter whether it's a meditation practice or learning to crochet or how to change the oil in the car or whatever it is, there's a way in which sometimes there's this a little bit of resistance. And so what can we do to support us with this? Recognizing that we don't have to beat ourselves up. We don't have to make it be about us as much as recognizing, oh, yeah, this too is part of the path of practice. And so I'd like to share uh, an awakening poem. Those of you who've been doing many of our classes will recognize this poem, but I, I feel really touched by this poem, so I, I like to share it. And this is a, a, a poem where from somebody, this is from the Buddha's time, thousands of years ago, written by a woman who was maybe not so differently than Ganaka Mogalana, whom we meet in Majjama 107, who was wondering about this training. Other people train. Do you guys train? Um, Padachara, the author of this poem, she also is having a similar question, but she finds her way with it. So the poem goes like this. Plowing, sorry, plowing fields with plows, sowing seeds in the ground, caring for children and family, people gain wealth. So she's noticing that other people are getting fruits of their labor. And then she asks, why is it that I, thorough and virtuous conduct, doing the Buddha's instructions, not lazy or proud, have not attained release? So why doesn't she find the fruits of her labors, just like other people are? 
And so she states that she is doing the training. She says that she has this thorough and virtuous conduct doing the Buddha's instruction, but she doesn't see the fruits of her practice. But the poem continues. I watched the water, the foot washing water, flow from high ground to low. With this, the mind concentrated like a thoroughbred horse. Taking an oil lamp, I entered my hut and looking over the bed, I sat down on the bed. So she's practicing with just ordinary experiences. If there's no pavement and no shoes, you wash your feet very often. And she's just getting ready for sleep. So she's taking her lamp into the, her room and she's looking at the bed, sitting down on the bed. And then the poem continues. Taking a needle, I pulled out the wick. As the flame went out, the mind was freed. It's fantastic, right? That she's practicing just with what's happening. So after creating the foundation of this training, she finds freedom in an ordinary experience. How many times had she turned off a lamp in her lifetime? Countless times. So this poem is pointing to like using the foundation of the training, but maybe we might be expecting that there's got to be, we have to do something extraordinary or do something different than what's being pointed to. But this poem is pointing to just living our ordinary life. So I want to share another poem that talks about like inspiration. Like sometimes we do feel like, um, I don't really want to, I don't, (laughs) there's just this resistance, you know, other things seem more important or we feel like we don't have the energy. This poem was written by a poet who was inspired by these women's poems. So the poet is not a woman. The poet is from today, contemporary time. But this poet was inspired by some of these early early Buddhist women. The poet is uh, Maddie Weingast, and it's uh, entitled Dantika. And this poem goes like this. While walking along the river after a long day meditating on Vulture's Peak, I watched an elephant splashing its way out of the water and up the bank. Hello, my friend, the person waiting there said, scratching the elephant behind its ear. Did you have a good bath? The elephant stretched out its leg, the person climbed up, and the two of them rode off like that, together. Seeing What had been once so wild, now a friend and a companion to this good person, I took a seat under the nearest tree and reached out a gentle hand to my own mind. Truly, I thought, this is why I came to the woods. So this poet here is describing finding inspiration, just noticing an ordinary sight. In ancient India, right, an elephant, I don't know if everybody had contact with them all the time, but this is just an elephant taking a bath, coming out, and the person interacting with them. So again, it's having a 
the the author the, the, that's being referred to here is begins with after a long day meditating on Vulture's Peak. So just again pointing to having invested the training, then somehow imbues the heart and the mind with some sensitivity that might notice ordinary things in a new way that provides inspiration. So when we are feeling a sense of resistance, when we want to stop on this path or veer off, I might say, instead of entangling ourselves more with this resistance or or entangling ourselves with the struggle or, or even like struggling with the struggle or resisting with the resistance, instead, can we take it as feedback when we notice this resistance? Like, oh, something's here, something to pay attention to. And can we settle back and open up? And maybe we can drop in this question. What is happening now that I'm not open to? Sometimes we can get tight and just keep on struggling and struggling. But can we maybe like step back? Maybe drop in this question. What is happening now that I'm not open to? And it's asking the question rather than finding the answer. That is the way forward. Asking the question in which that we are um, getting into the present moment and tuning into ourselves. And this is a way in which we can align with the practice. And we might even say that the Buddha recognized that this resistance I'm using this word resistance, you know, stopping short, veering off, struggling, aversion. He recognized this and put it as an integral part of this path of practice. For those of you who are familiar with the Eightfold Path, will recognize wise effort, which we might summarize and uh, um, maybe use some colloquial language to wise effort as in with the helpful and out with the unhelpful. So noticing what is unhelpful, noticing what is helpful in finding our way on this path. And part of our practice, of course, is to becoming sensitive to what is helpful and what is not helpful, just like maybe in these poems. So I said that, can we like settle back and open up and maybe drop in this question about emotions or Maybe there's, or what is it that's not being seen? And maybe it's some difficult emotions or this feeling of discomfort. But just as uh, in the same way, there might be some unseen views that are being clung to, some unseen beliefs that are being clung to. There, maybe the power is that they're unseen maybe aren't so aware of them. And I think in some of the stories that we saw in Majjama 29, Simile of the Heartwood in Majjama 107, Kanaka Mogalana, that we see some of these views that are brought forth and maybe because they're exaggerated, we think like, I'm not like that. But are there ways in which we are a little bit like that? Maybe not using the exact uh, language there. For example, Maybe we do have a little bit of complacency just because of the amount of uh, progress that we have, or maybe we have a little bit of, uh, I don't, 
pride, maybe I don't know if pride is the right word, but this feeling like, well, you know, I've done this. What more do I need to do? For example, in Majima 29, section four, this language describing a practitioner being diligent, they achieve concentration. They're happy with that and they've got all they wished for. And they glorify themselves and put others down on account of that. I'm the one with concentration and unified mind. Those others, they lack concentration and they have strained minds. And so they become indulgent and fall into negligence regarding that accomplishment and concentration. And being negligent, they live in suffering. We might think like, I'm not going to do that, but I'll tell this little story. And one time I was on a really long retreat and, uh, you know, I had plenty of time for the mind to get settled and to get quiet. And just in particular on this one day, I was um, able to just, I don't know, tapped into something that was different and felt really quiet. So when the bell rang for the end of the sitting meditation, I thought, I'm, I'm not ready to get up. I'm just going to keep sitting. Then I walked set for a while. And then the end of the next session, the walking session, arose the bell. I could hear the bell in the other room for the walking and the walking. But I thought, you know, maybe I'm going to stay here a little bit. I shifted my posture a little bit and settled in for the next sitting. This is not my usual thing. It's not something that I do all the time. But at that time, it seemed possible. And then I sat through that uh, second sitting. And then I thought, like, wow, look at me. I uh, sat through, you know, all this. I sit, walk, sit. And I didn't think I was doing that until later that day. I was late to one of the sits. I walked in late, which I don't like to do. It's, you know, discouraged on retreat. But I noticed the mind going like, it's okay. I walked in late. I'm the one that did the sit, walk, sit earlier in the day. So I could show up late. So there's this way in which we don't even notice how what we've done or what we've accomplished is a um, affects us. So just when we feel like we're struggling, is there just to notice if there's some unseen maybe beliefs or views that are happening? And then, of course, in uh, Majjhima 107, the Buddha is saying, Nibbana exists. The path leading to nibbana exists, and I am present as the guide. Yet when my disciples have been advised and instructed by me, some of them attain nibbana and some do not. What can I do about that? I'm the one who shows the way. And and plus it is they're the one that has to do the work. But just some unseen view that we might have is notice if we have some beliefs that sometime we will find the perfect practice or the perfect teacher. Maybe we're holding back a little bit thinking that, okay, I'm not quite sure about this one. I need to wait to find the absolutely perfect one. And I appreciate very much that uh, Jack Kornfield, he tells this story, who he was a, a student of Ajahn Chah. Some of you may know he's recognized. Ajahn Chah is one of the greatest meditation masters in the 20th century, and uh, Jack Kornfield is a Westerner having some chutzpah, goes to Ajahn Chah and says, you don't seem very enlightened to me. <laughs> Can you imagine? 
And Ajahn Chah, he replies, it's good that I don't seem enlightened to you because then you'd still be looking for enlightenment outside of yourself. Pointing to, you'd still be looking for the perfect teacher, the perfect practice or something like this. So maybe even though we might have heard this practice or the instructions, we're not quite following them because we're still waiting to feel like the perfect ones. So just wanted to offer some ways in which we might put together some of this, what we're learning in Manjama 29 and 107 about supports for us for when we are finding resistance towards the practice, when we might be stopping short or veering off. And with that, I'll turn it over to Kim. Thank you, Diana. That was wonderful. Um, Now is a chance for you to talk a bit among yourselves and um, talk a little bit about this issue of orienting toward the path and working with your own mind uh, as we go along. So we'll have some breakout groups. And just as a uh, reminder, um, it would be just a time to really share about your own practice and appreciate what you're hearing from others. So we're not trying to uh, give advice or anything like that. Um, Convince people of things. So the questions uh, to consider with your small group of three or four are... Uh, First of all, what do you use as kind of a North Star for your practice? And that doesn't mean the ideal. We just heard we're not looking for something perfect. But, you know, what is it that draws your mind as uh, something to orient around? And that can be different for different people. And you might get ideas from the other folks in your group. Maybe you look more toward people or practices or you have uh, a certain sense in your body of uh, what helps guide you. And then the second question, which is kind of a refinement or a sub-question of that, is what are the orienting values that guide your practice? Um, Maybe a sense, uh, I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but, you know, what are the... um, the inspirations that draw you? Are you drawn to peace and tranquility, to harmony, to kindness? Um, What helps you know when you're on track or not? Diana pointed toward knowing, having a a feeling in our system of what is on track or not. And somebody may be able to put these in the chat. I could do that, actually. Want me to do it, Kim? There we go. Just took me a moment. Okay, so you'll have a bit of time to talk about this and enjoy. Okay, hello, welcome back. Nice to see everyone. So um, we again have an opportunity for some questions or comments. And I wanted to uh, make sure that we included um, Winnie and Will, who had their hands up earlier. It's, it's um, You could comment on the breakout rooms or if your question or comment is still relevant. Um, Winnie, would you like to offer something? 
Well, I'll just be really quick because when you were talking about restraints, I remember I heard that some somewhere, and it was in the Dhammapada in your class. So uh-huh. I went back and looked at it, and, you know, I don't need to go into it, but it made it much clearer what you were um, talking about as part of our discussion um, on Thursday. So I just want to share with you that if anyone has a copy of the John Potter, it's in there and it's very succinct about what restraint means. Oh, great. Well, thank you. One of the fruits that we hope people will have from Sutta study is the ability to recognize that an idea is something that they've seen somewhere else in the teachings and to go look that up and then realize, ah, this one in the Majjhima supports something in the Dhammapada that I didn't understand before or adds a new dimension. That's that's a skill, actually, to start to be able to do that. Thank you so much, Winnie. Yeah. And um, Will, did you want to comment? Well, yeah, I don't know whether this would be a distraction or not, but it, it, the question kind of lingers from last time, too. And that is in Majjhima 107, it seems like, you know, when they're kind of laying out a path there or describing it, that it stops with the jhanas, with the fourth jhana. And then it talks about, you know, if you're an, if you're an arhat, continue doing this. If you're not an arhat, yeah. So I just wonder if that's a peculiarity of this particular sutta, because I know other places it's not doesn't just stop with the jhanas, right? But, it's an interesting question. Yeah, the, this MN107, I noticed that also uh, doesn't explicitly reference insight and awakening yeah. uh, as the fruit of jhana practice. And I don't know that I have a clear explanation for why that is, except that it's maybe it's focusing on what the Buddha uh, is teaching someone, how he's restraining or disciplining them, as it says in the text. And so there's this series of steps early on, and then he sends them off to the forest to cultivate jhana. And that's maybe it's showing us that that's kind of the extent of what a teacher does. Um, They give the instructions all the way to the culmination of the mind in jhana. And then it's kind of not up to either the teacher or us at that point um, to uh, move on into the uh, insight stages. Uh, that's just my pasted on explanation. If any of the other teachers want to comment, but it seems like in the spirit of the, uh, of the text, it's more about the process than about the insights that come from it. I, I love that answer, Kim. I think that's right. And it kind of, goes back to the distinction made yesterday, uh, Thursday and also by Diana this morning of sort of what the teacher, how the teacher points the way, that responsibility, and then the practitioner and then the practice. And Diana this morning in the poem, the first poem, uh, mentioned that this practitioner notices water falling, right? That this pro- this momentum is created in the mind by practice, and it has its own momentum. Uh, and I think that jive nicely with your response. Thanks. It's a good question. Yeah. Um, other thoughts? How was that uh, breakout rooms? That uh, fruitful, interesting. Yeah, Eileen.
Oh, sorry about that. It was a little slow. Good morning, everyone. It's really lovely to see you all. Um, I feel funny because I always used to be one of those people who never said anything, and it's like I keep saying things. But um, what I, at first I went blank when I saw these questions about North Star, but I realized that the thing that kind of keep basically a lot of what keeps me going is um, a lot of it is the third and fourth noble truths, which offer you know, that there is a way out, that this isn't necessarily inevitable, that we just be miserable all the time and then just have to go see a movie or go talk to our girlfriend or whatever uh, to relieve the suffering temporarily. But it, it, it's different here, that we don't ha also have to wait for a savior to come down and, and fix it all for us, that we can um, take action for ourselves. I realized as everyone was talking to that, Suffering is a lot of what keeps me on track. And um, honestly, death also is, is a big one because mm -hmm. it seems to me that in the Marana Sati kinds of context, people said, you know, since you're not going to be here forever, you better get on with it. You better get on with your enlightenment or otherwise you're going to be a heap of bones and not enlightened. And, you know, so to, to wake up before it's too late, basically. Is the message of that. So um, I don't have a regular Maranasati practice and I often have resisted that, but um, it's it's really that fear that, you know, I don't I don't want to come back here, <laughs> tell the truth. So uh, that kind of keeps me going too. Um, appreciate everyone this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Eileen. Um, yeah, just to highlight the the word that you use, Maranasati, that means mindfulness of death, which is one of the practices uh, among many that the Buddha offered to uh, as an inspiration, actually. And people who you know have, aren't familiar with Buddhism can sometimes find that surprising that there's this direct emphasis on death, but many people have found it to be motivating. I actually heard you name two sides, um, which is quite beautiful. You know, there's the side that kind of spurs us on, like, oh, I'm not free yet, um, or death is coming, and how am I going to be able to meet that well? Uh, and then there's the inspirational side of the third and fourth noble truths. Ah, there's freedom possible, there's peace possible. And, you know, some people choose one side or the other or different ones at different times, but they're like the front and the back of the hand. They can both lead us onward, whether we are moving away from suffering or toward freedom, it's the same movement. So thank you so much for articulating that. And that was part of the point of the question. You said at first you weren't sure what to, to make of the question. Uh, it can help to kind of think explicitly, oh, yeah, I do have things that I orient around and maybe we haven't quite directed our mind to that yet. And it can change, by the way. So whatever you chose, don't grasp onto it forever because it might shift through the course of the path. There's another short comment we could. All right, well then I'm happy to pass it on to Ying. Actually, uh, to to David, um, I go. I, I I answer to Ying. Uh, that works for me. But, Sorry about uh, that. No, no. Let's 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 uh, before we have another teaching from Ying. Let's let's sit together in meditation a little bit and bring 
bring the teachings suggested by these two suttas directly into uh, a guided meditation practice of about 15 minutes. So join me, join us, join one another in finding uh, your way back to your meditation posture, bringing the eyes down to a relaxed place, if that feels comfortable. And as we do so, enjoying maybe, certainly recognizing the subtle rebalancings that happen as we bring our attention inward, bring our attention away from the visual stimulation uh, to the inner life, rebalancing a little bit maybe the head and the heart, bringing, bringing our attention down, inward and down into the body. Taking note of the breath in the body and noticing there too the natural balance that we can enjoy and take advantage of with each in breath, a little spritz of energy. We don't have to make anything up in our practice. We don't have to look outside. We don't have to uh, imagine. We can just be aware that when oxygen hits the bloodstream with each in breath, there's a little bit of energy available. And that with each out-breath, there's a letting go. We can just enjoy these rebalancings as we enter the meditation. And then perhaps in this meditation, as a way of invoking these wonderful suttas, we can briefly touch in with the heartwood of our practice to protect ourselves against stopping short. That is, maybe we can set an intention for this sit. And just as in the poem that Diana read and her commentary, we don't need to look outside ourselves. Somewhere in this bringing ourselves into meditation, you may find some warm-heartedness or some ease or some stillness, some opening up, some sensitivity, some connection some clarity. And there we find the heartwood of the practice, something that, something that leads forward, something that points the way, something that keeps us, keeps us in the path. Maybe we can touch in with a little humility. That also points forward and onward. Maybe our intention for the sit, maybe our touching in with the heartwood is very simple, just to keep coming back here, noticing the here and now of our experience, bringing the the breath back to the center or the foreground of our experience over and over again. Maybe touching in with the heartwood, setting an intention in the, the outset of our sit can take the form of Noticing, being attentive 
to the heart. Noticing whether it feels tight or whether it feels open. Not judging, not second guessing, just noticing. And then once we've grounded ourselves in some heartwood, some intention, some awareness of the goodness in our practice, knowing that that goodness leads onward, we can just be aware of how we keep going. Just like we don't have to set an intention or think of heartwood outside ourselves, we can just notice in our practice how we do keep going. For example, simply how we return to the breath or how we bring the breathing back to the center of our attention. Maybe the mind gets snagged around a thought, the usual planning, solution finding, problem solving thinking about the past, thinking about other people, thinking about ourselves. We can just bring bring the breath back to the middle of our attention, come back to here, come back to now. And as we do so, we can return, open back up to the breath, bring the breath back to the foreground. Gently, kindly, unhurriedly. Everything that comes up in the meditation has a place here. As with the poem that Diana read, in which the lamp is put out, the ordinary experience of our world that happens in meditation, whatever arises, sound, thought, is good enough. all the ordinary experience that comes up in our meditation, we can become aware of, touch, and allow to proceed on its way, let go. And though in this way, in this manner, we keep going. And keep going on the path. 
We may notice things that arise that cause a tangle, a knot, a little stress, some suffering. And we may notice things like the clarity, the stillness, the opening, the soft-heartedness that are supportive. And we can keep going by letting the helpful in and letting the unhelpful go. In with the helpful, as Diana said, out with the unhelpful.
Thank you, David. Uh, so I'm going to offer um, another short dharmat today. And I feel like I'm, you know, all of us, the uh, teachers, kind of saying the same thing. <laughs> maybe different voices, <laughs> maybe different examples. And, and the, the message um, that this is two suttas are offering is to keep practicing, keep going, right? And so, um, on my part of the talk, uh, we wanted to explore this question that some, sometimes comes up uh, in our practice, and that is, how can we know that we're walking the path? Or how can we know that we're on the path? And we've talked about how one might veer off or stop short. Can we know uh, that we're on the path or we're walking the path? And I feel a little apologetic uh, that I won't offer you the answer that you may like to hear. (laughs) Um, And there's no magic here. As a gradual training, Um, we come to know this um, more and more clearly, little by little, gradually. And it's oftentimes that it's not totally clear because we may be running into a spell of difficulties uh, with our practice and uh, wandering around, we got distracted a bit. It's not always clear. But when we um, give ourselves over to the practice uh, with with a sincerity, persistence, we can learn little by little. And so we can learn by observing the effects of our practice, of the training. And uh, we can also observe the effect when we uh, do veer off or stop short. And we can learn from our mistakes along the way. And so, you know, who hasn't made mistakes? You know, we all have veered off and stopped short <laughs> probably thousands of times <laughs> on the way. And it's important to, to just remember that we can always come back. I want to share this sutta that... Um, Maybe many, many of you have heard uh, this sutta before, and this is a sutta where uh, the Buddha was offering um, a teaching to his young son, Rahula, and about um, how to reflect often uh, when he goes about taking actions you know, in living his life. This is when Rahula was quite young, probably wasn't able to meditate that much well, um, and I was, and so the Buddha offered this instruction, say, oh, reflect very often before you take your action to do something. Um, reflect if this action is going to lead to benefit for yourself, for others, and both. And then that, that doesn't do it. And while you're taking action, 
you also observe and reflect if this is leading to uh, benefits to yourself, others, and both self and others. And then after taking the action, you reflect it back. Did this action lead to well-being for myself, others, and both? And so what this is pointing to is there is a way that we can engage with this practice as an ongoing learning process. And so I didn't say that, you know, Rahula would just stop after you reflect the first time because we don't always know while we're doing it, all kinds of things may be happening that um, we may lose track. And so uh, reflect often, observe all these effects as we go along. And I like this uh, in that way. Uh, we can grow, mature, little by little. And so this hardwood simile, yeah, maybe we, since we don't know what the hardwood is, at the beginning we just heard someone saying that tree has a hardwood, go get it there. We don't quite know for ourselves what a hardwood is. So maybe we got twigs and branches and barks and we went and tried to build a house. And so enough of we discover, oh, this doesn't work. And so we come back. We come back, and that's the important aspect of this. And it may be hard along the way, and the practice is not easy. Um, and life throws all kinds of challenging things at us, crazy things at us. Um, that we're inviting ourselves to keep coming back because getting to the hardwood, you know, who knows, the road might be closed, <laughs> you know, or you got a weather system and you can't really chip away all those outer layers. It takes a while. I would keep doing this. I'm fond of the Susutta that I heard uh, on this last uh, month-long retreat uh, in March in Spirit Rock. In the middle of the month, uh, you know, people might have all kinds of difficulties. The teacher offered this sutta from Samyutta Nikaya. Uh, it's Samyutta Nikaya 2.6 called uh, Kamada Sutta. This is a deity, Kamada, that is complaining to the Buddha how hard the practice is. It's a spiritual practice is so hard. This is what the Kamada was complaining, lamenting again and again. And the Buddha was very honest. The Buddha agreed. Yep, practice is hard. But the Buddha points out that the true practitioner do it even though it's hard. I want to read this a little bit. It was really kind of fun when the teacher highlighted this, that Kamada was a deity. I don't know what kind of a difficulties the deities would meet. But we know, you know, with the human bodies, and we have all kinds of challenges. And, and this deity apparently has struggled a lot. So um, he opened up this conversation with the Buddha, says, 
so hard it is to do, Lord. It's so very hard to do. And the Buddha says, but still, they do what's hard to do, who steady themselves with the virtue. For one pursuing thus, content arises, and with it, joy. And this conversation goes on, you know, walking through this step-by-step virtue and samadhi and and panya. But each time, each uh, each step, uh, Kamada would lament, so hard it is to get this concentrated mind or, or contentment. And the Buddha said, yeah, but still, they get what's hard to get, and they're diligent. And so hard it is to, uh, it, it is to tame this wild mind. <laughs> and the Buddha said, but still, they tame what's hard to tame. And I want to read this last passage in this sutta. And the uh, Kamada complains that it's so hard it is to do, Lord, on this path that gets so rough. <laughs> we can probably relate to this, right? And get a little rough or a lot rougher. <laughs> and the Buddha says, still, nobles, Kamada, proceed on path both rough and hard to take. Those who are less than noble fall on their heads when the path gets rough. But for nobles, the path is smooth. For nobles smooth out what is rough. I just, I love this. Um, nobles are not nobles because of some sort of entitlement and uh, inheritance. A nobles walks the path even if it's rough and hard. And they're nobles because they put in the work to smooth out the rough spots. And so that's the invitation of a walking this path. Um, sincerely, wholeheartedly, courageously, and with a commitment. And when we talk about the path, sometimes um, people can hold this path as um, a kind of um, conceptual ideas, as some sort of abstract philosophy. But walking the path, this practice, is about where we are right now, here and now, in the ordinariness of um, our life, in this body, in our mind and heart, right here. Maybe in the midst of listening to a Dharma talk or uh, in giving a Dharma talk or when you're sharing with uh, fellow practitioners are eating meals, drinking tea, replying an email. It's in the ordinariness of um, our life, 
as Diana was pointing out in reading this Atajara poem. And we can feel then the potency of walking this path right here in our being. And sometimes we, uh, Diana spoke about how we ha might have this sense of uh, the movements of the path in us, and that there's a hint of the path. We may also sometimes have this intuitive sense of being off. Maybe the heart feels constricted. We can know this if we begin to pay attention to what's happening here and now. Maybe uh, there are certain kind of tension we carry uh, in our body that seems unnecessary, but it's there. And so there are these signs to allow us to begin uh, to notice what's happening uh, in, our, um, in our practice. And there are times that we're maybe even veering off or stop short in some big ways. You know, maybe it feels really hard at times and we just, you know, end up going back to some usual distractions. Um, watching TV, I don't know, hang out at the bar. I don't know what the people all do, <laughs> you know, but there are times that we, um, uh, we uh, do veer off in some significant ways. But if we notice and that this is happening, at some point we may notice that this is not going to work. And maybe there is a sense of a disconnect with a deeper side, a deeper kind of our being, or disconnect with our values, and the North Star that the Kim was inviting us to reflect. And so we come back, and it's never too late to come back. I want to read this story from uh, the Monastery Within. I have kind of a similar kind of a notes on this little tiny book, too. <laughs> they're not color-coded, but they're definitely oriented um, to tell me what to bring up. I want to share uh, this uh, little story called Aspirations. It says the two young men happened to enter the monastery on the same day. One was an aristocrat who had a sense of entitlement. The other was the son of a local farmer who had spent his life working on the family farm. During their entrance interview, the abbess asked them why they were coming, uh, they, why they were becoming monks. The aristocrat said that he had come to climb to the highest achievement of human life, to experience the bliss, the glory, and the brilliant light of liberation. The peasant said, I'm poor and unschooled, and I have no hope of enlightenment. However, I hope to find the path in the everyday activity of my life. May I see the truth in the food I eat, in the work I do, and in the people I encounter. 
Within six months, the peasant was graced with liberation. The aristocrat is still striving on courageously. This is another flavor of the Patajara story, I guess. <laughs> and so, resting in the immediacy of our experience, and so we'll get to know this path little by little. And、uh, I think I'm gonna stop now and pass it on to. Diana, Diana, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Ying. That was lovely, lovely. Yeah. So now we'd like to open it up to whatever questions or comments you might have about、um, any of the teachings or this idea of how to when we're feeling stuck or stopping short, veering off. Some of the ways to work with it and. Ying, I appreciated that in your talk. You said, "Well, you kind of said, 'Well, the noble ones they do what is hard to do.' So, kind of like we're noble. And then in the story of the monastery within, it's like, 'Well, the peasant is the one who just with ordinary experiences, like we're peasants.' I just love this, right? It's not like we're one or the other. Or I mean, sometimes we feel like one or the other, and or whomever our back, whomever or whatever our background is, or however we're considering ourselves." There's a way to practice. There's a way to practice. So, thank you. Anybody have some comments or questions、um, they'd like to share as we kind of like wrap up、um, this journey we've been on for these past three days? So, Kevin or Aaron? I'm not sure which one of you,、uh, but maybe Kevin. He's leaning forward, so I'm guessing it's Kevin. Thank you.、Um, Just the, with the flavor of uh, uh, everyone's reflections, and、um, also this came up in our small group discussion.、Um, maybe、um, it's a sign of, of、uh, advancing age, but I really like short mnemonic things. And what came to rise for me is、um, uh, striking a balance between marnasati and metta in terms of motivation.、Um, you know,、uh, there, there's this quality that keeps coming up of Um, you know what is the right balance between carrot and stick? And I'm one of those people that has veered off heavily towards the stick part, and that leads to the self-judgment, the striving, the 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 pushing in practice. And um, uh, uh, you know, it's so 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 really looking at it from the point of view of、um, what's the balance that I need in order to create samvega.、Um, When I sit down every day, and and when I'm doing it, and、um, uh, I I feel like、um, these suttas are encouraging that, and above all, all of you on the teaching team have been encouraging and modeling that the whole time. So I just wanted to bring that up. Thank you, thank you, Kevin. The carrot or the stick, yes. And I'll just say that、uh, you're in good company with this idea about the stick. I think there's so many people we're kind of like are. Hitting ourselves, and I'll just say, in case it's helpful, that、um, recognizing this,、uh, I used to teach like、uh, happy hour, which was like loving kindness practice twice a week, and I did a whole, 
for months, I did a whole session just on the inner critic. Like, how can we work with the inner critic and some of the loving kindness practices or other practices we can do? Just this recognition that it's so common to do this, to think that, uh, you know, to beat ourselves up about something. But yeah, thank you, Kevin, for bringing that in. Maybe I'll just throw in also. I appreciate it. I think it was Eileen who brought in Marana Sati. Yeah, this is a like we're all going to die, and it's part of this uh, recollection practices. Or so there's some formal ways to practice with this, and how powerful that can be. And maybe I'll say not only um, powerful, Kevin, and what you were saying, you talked about like Meta and Marana Sati. There's a way I feel like kind of both of them merge together, where there's just this tenderness of the heart that happens with both practices and how such an integral way that can be for our practice, this tenderness of the heart. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe I'll pass it on to Kim who can uh, help us do a little bit of this wrapping up. Okay, great. So yeah, we're nearing the, end of our time and just to tie things up a bit you know we've had um, a lot of talk around this idea of the path and our staying on it or going far enough on it and um, I think what, what we want to land on at the end here is the sense of inner resource that we bring with us you know that because um, the path, it's a nice image, this idea of a road or a, something external like a tree that we're uh, moving into the middle of. But actually, the path is something that doesn't exist outside of us. You know, it's something that is grown through our own practice. We are the tree. We are the road um, that is forming. And uh, learning to tune into that through the heart, through this sense of, am I off? Am I aligned? Um, That's what we start to point toward in practice. And we start to understand these images as mm, inspirations um, more than as kind of the uh, external things that we may see them as initially. So... Uh, the hope is that there's um, maybe something that you learned from someone else or from engaging with this material that you can uh, take forward with you as some kind of a uh, inner guide. And if you, I don't know, maybe just take a moment to reflect, is there something that, you know, in the next week of practice, I could emphasize more that would uh, help deepen where I am on the path right now? how the path is emerging in me right now through my very daily actions and then kind of lean toward that. And then things will shift and there will be another leaning, but there's a, there starts to be kind of an art form about the path. And I I hope that's what we've pointed to in the end. Suttas can be so uh, evocative in that way. 
So um, I guess one of the obligations of this section is to share the Donna link. So let me do that. That's that will let the Sati Center know that your anything you offer is for this class in particular. And then um, looking forward, uh, we just wanted to mention that the four of us will be teaching a retreat at the Insight Retreat Center. It's our first opportunity to teach a residential retreat together. And it will be, uh, we call these uh, Sati Center classes, study and practice, and we're calling the retreat practice and study. <laughs> so it will have both components, emphasis on maybe the, the sitting and the internal practice, but it will also include some interaction, some reading, some reflecting. So a little different from the standard Insight Retreat Center retreat and registration. Um, you can register still. If you go to IRC's website, it will say you're going to be added to the wait list. But I can tell you the wait list is relatively short right now. So feel free to register and chances are good. So that will be in July, July 24th through 29th at Insight Retreat Center. And we're going to look at the four elements. No, the five elements. We're including space. So come and find out about those. All right. Ying. Yeah. Um, well, coming to the end of uh, this class series together. And um, let's take a moment to, to kind of... Um, do this ritual that uh, in our tradition we do at the end of um, session or class, which is called a dedication of a merit. That is um, our practice and learning is um, not only beneficial to ourselves, but it's also beneficial to all beings. And so we use this ritual as a way to express this sentiment. So maybe you can join me. Just take a moment. And maybe remember uh, some goodness and that arose out of practicing and studying together in this past week, however small or big, whatever form it may be, embodied in the mind or heart. And allow yourself to rest in that goodness. And I'm going to read and this Buddhist um, prayer as a form of a dedication of a merit. Just as the soft rings fill the streams, pour into the rivers, and join together in the oceans, so may the power of every moment of your goodness flow forth to awaken and to heal all beings. Those here now, those gone before, those yet to come. So may it be so. Thank you everyone um, for your participation. 
and uh, feel free to unmute and uh, uh, we can have a chaotic goodbyes. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.